I'll open us in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. <clears throat> thank you for the wonderful, wonderful ways you've revealed your Son in the Old Testament. Help us to see him and appreciate the great truths you've contained there, growing in our faith and affection for example, with the bronze serpent and how help us to see all the wonderful ways he's revealed. Amen. Well, some fading in and out a little bit, huh? Okay. Testing, testing. Thanks, Dave. That sounds a little better. That doesn't sound like it's fading in and out. Good? Back there, Ken? All right, thank you. Okay. Have any military people here that are familiar with Miles Gear? Ever used Miles Gear? All right, Ken. Anyone else? Miles Gear, Miles stands for, see, I can't even remember. I have to look at my notes. Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System. Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System. So it was a way for us to train, and if you want to have an idea what it looks like, think of a big game of laser tag. And so what happens is you're wearing these straps that have all these sensors on them, and then when you get shot, it's connected, it starts making this real loud, um, very obnoxious sound that echoes through the woods to let everyone know that you've been killed, and your weapon stops firing at that point. So it's essentially like you're dead, let's say. So you can't, you can't shoot anyone, and you just kind of wait there until the battle is over, and then you restart. And one of the neat things for me that I didn't, I didn't know this until I became an armor officer, they actually have miles gear for tanks. And so I was able to go through the, run through the woods, you know, with miles gear on as a, as a soldier uh, when we were training in infantry tactics. But then when I became an armor officer, they put miles gear on tanks, and tanks get shot, and then they have to stop moving, and there's this big red light that flashes and shows that the the tank has been defeated. And so when uh, one time we were training and this guy pulled me aside and he was criticizing kind of the um, way the military was training us because he said that we were learning to put our confidence in something or look at something that, that couldn't really save us or couldn't really deliver us. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, when we're all training like this with Miles Gear, they do it because we're, it's supposed to be as realistic as possible or as much like real battle or con combat as possible. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, they're training all of us to believe that what can keep us safe. And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, what do you think could keep you safe? What if you were getting shot at? I said, oh, well, you know, this building or this, or this rock or this cliff, those are, or this tree, you know, the, these would be things I'd hide behind. And he said, okay, but we're all being trained that you can hide behind bushes. Did you understand why he said that? Because a laser, a leaf is going to stop a laser as easily as a, as a tree, you know. And so he said, you're being told that you can look at these things. And I thought, well, okay, I suppose. So I kind of I remember that and just made a note to myself. I don't think if I'd ever been in real combat that I would have thought a bush could protect me. Just made a note and thought, hey, if I'm ever in real combat, make sure I don't hide behind a, a leaf thinking that's going to protect me from bullets. And I kind of thought about that because the Israelites were facing a situation where they had to look at something and believe that it could save them or deliver them, and determine whether it really could or not. And that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning. It's the bronze serpent. So look with me in, Gen in Numbers 21. We're going to start at verse 4. By the way, if you're, if you're new to joining us, we're looking at types of, a few types of Christ. This will be the, the last one, and then I, I believe I'll be turning it back over to Pastor Nathan. We looked at the um, rock in the wilderness in Numbers 20, Exodus 17, Numbers 20, concluded that, and now looking at the bronze serpent this morning. And then next Sunday will probably be the last Sunday. So look at me in Numbers 21, verse 4, and how the Israelites are told to look to this to be saved or delivered. 
says, from Mount Hor, starting at verse 4, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no water and no food, or no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. All right, so look at verse 4. We're going to talk about the application toward the end. We'll go through the account. We'll get to the application. That'll probably be most of next, next Sunday school. At verse 4 with me, there's something here that gives some insight into why this situation took place. It says, from Mount Hor, which is another name for Sinai, they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Why did, why did the Israelites become impatient there? I guess I could show you a map. It might, be a, it might look a little insignificant, but it's really not. The Edomites, who were the brother nation to the nation of Israel, they were the descendants of Esau, like the Israelites are the descendant of Jacob, and like brothers, they were generally, uh, a few times they got along, actually worse than more, most brothers. They were mostly enemies throughout the Old Testament. And when the Israelites wanted to pass through the land of Edom to make it to the, to Sinai, to the promised land, the, the Edomites would not allow them passage. And so if you were to look on a map, and maybe even some of your study Bibles illustrate this, what the Israelites had to do is they, they had to stop heading toward the promised land and to go around Edom, they actually had to head back to the wilderness, go back into the wilderness around Edom, which took them further away from the promised land, greatly extended their journey, made them walk farther before they could make it to the promised land. And so this was a very uh, annoying situation. This was very frustrating. And you can see that there. It says in the verse that they became impatient, and that's referring to them having to experience this discouraging situation, traveling around Edom, you know, combined with the lack of food and combined with the lack of water, the people begin to engage in one of their favorite wilderness activities, which is what? <laughs> Complaining, that's exactly right. So one difference in this account is that while Israel previously complained about Moses directly, they would complain about Moses directly, and then Moses or Aaron would make clear that they were indirectly complaining about God. But this time, they actually directly complained about God. Directly. Previously, it was just something done indirectly. They also complained about what? What else do you see them complaining about? The manna. They complained about the manna, which is pretty surprising to me. You think that's something they would have been grateful for, but it just shows our ability to be discontent and be frustrated even with the blessings that... God gives us. And so the manna is one of the most other, we won't look at it, but one of the other most dramatic types are pictures of Christ. There's bread that came down from heaven. And then in John 6, Jesus said that he is the true and greater bread that comes down from heaven. Where the manna extended the Israelites' lives physically, Jesus extends our lives eternally. The manna gave physical life, Jesus gives eternal spiritual life. And so he is the true and greater manna or bread. So there's almost this way I wonder 
in which when they complained about the manna, that they were also complaining about Christ or complaining about this beautiful type of Christ. And I'm, I'm kind of highlighting this so you understand the severe discipline because this is a pretty unique account in contrast with the other instances of Israel's complaints. Most of the time, actually, I might be, I might be, this might be the only instance when Israel complained, except for the 12 spies, when God responded this way. The other times when Israel complained, how did God respond to them? Very what? Very graciously, very kindly. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, except for the 12 spies, I can't, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I cannot think of another instance of God disciplining them. They cry out, they complain, they accuse God of murder for not feeding them, and he rains bread from heaven. They accuse God of trying to murder them and because they, he, they don't have enough water or any water, and God graciously provides water from a rock. So every other time, there's no sign of God's frustration toward the people. He's very gracious, but in this instance, it, it was clearly uh, upsetting enough to him that he responds with this severe, with this discipline. I think this is part of it, them complaining about the, about the manna. Okay, any thoughts or anything? God unleashes, so previously, you know, they complain, they get water from a rock. They complain, they get bread from heaven. Or even they complain, they get the Red Sea parted. But in this instance, they complain and they get serpents. God sends these serpents through the camp that begin biting the people. They're poisonous. It says many of the people became sick and many of them were dying. And I was just thinking, I can't say this is exactly what God had in mind with this, but this is what kind of occurred to me, that you complain about the bread from heaven and you get the serpent. You reject the bread from heaven and you end up being sent the serpent. And I just think that's somewhat of a picture of what happens in life, that people who reject Christ, the true bread from heaven, end up embracing sin or end up embracing the devil. We, like many people, falsely believe that everyone is born a child of God, but there are two uh, groups that every person in all of history is part of, and that's the kingdom, or two, I don't want to say two groups, let me say two kingdoms everyone's part of, the kingdom of the devil and then the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, which everyone is born into. Everyone is part of that kingdom and then ransomed from that kingdom and put in God's kingdom. Uh, but people who reject God's kingdom or reject Christ remain in the kingdom of darkness with the devil or the serpent as the ruler, and that's what the people received here. The word for fiery, it's a translation of the Hebrew word seraph or seraph. Where, where have you heard that word before? In the Seraphim, yeah, that's right. So seraphim are the, the fiery angels, the angels who are flying around the throne of God, and there's some, something fiery about their appearance. And so these serpents are called fiery serpents, but not because they were uh, fiery in appearance or even because they were red, but because of the way their, their venom uh, felt, because of the way uh, the people felt when they were bitten by them. And so I think it was a very excruciating experience for people who were bitten. They were dying uh, in very agonizing and painful ways. Those people who were bitten, it was not something where they weren't really sure if they were bitten or not, or the suffering wasn't very bad. I'm picturing people in the camp who are writhing around on the ground in excruciating pain. They cannot be taken to, you know, Vancouver Clinic. They cannot be given sedatives or any sort of pain medication. They were just forced to endure these terrible snake bites that were very fiery, the pain in nature. Uh, it would have been horrific, I think, a very horrific experience for these people who are going through this. So in the past, 
Moses also fell on his face before God, and he interceded for the people. Moses being, if we're talking about types, another dramatic type of Christ in his intercession or mediation on behalf of wretched, sinful people, the way Christ mediates or intercedes on our behalf as we are wretched, sinful people to God. Moses would do that, but this terrible judgment was so um, severe that the people just immediately begged Moses. I mean, look at the, look what happens here. Look at verse 6. The Lord sends these fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people died. Now, normally what you would read next is something like, or, you know, Moses fell on his face and interceded for them. There's like no time for that. It's so bad that the next verse says, the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So, We didn't read all the other accounts, but if we did read all the other accounts, you would see that there's this very dramatic change here where we don't even get to see Moses' intercession or mediation for two reasons. One, because God so quickly unleashed this judgment on the people, and the second, because the people so quickly begged Moses to to help them or begged that that they would be alleviated of this. And so instead of removing the serpents, now here's here, if you didn't know the account and the people cry out to God and beg him to deliver them, what would you expect to read? You expect to read something like, God healed the people, or God took away the fiery serpents. We become, we developed a similarity with these accounts, you know, that we've known for so many years, but this isn't, this is not what we would expect to read. You would not expect, you would, when, when they cry out for deliverance, and then God hears them. What you would expect is, then God took away the serpents, they left the camp, and the people recovered. You would not expect God to tell Moses to create a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up to heal people. It's, a, it's completely uh, counterintuitive, or it's, or it's completely foreign to what we would, have, we would have imagined happening here. So he tells them to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and then anyone who's bitten can look at this pole and live. And let's make sure we understand the symbolism of each part of this to really appreciate how greatly this reveals our Savior to us, which is really my desire behind these messages. So the serpent, the serpent represents sin. I can remember there are a few passages that I remember early in my Christian life reading, finding to be particularly confusing. One of them, Abraham and Isaac, uh, and this is the second one that, that comes to mind that I remember very clearly wondering about, the bronze serpent, why God would have them lift up this. And what, what is it about the bronze serpent that seems to be particularly confusing or, or startling to us? What part of it? Huh? Oh, it looks like an idol? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, serpents. That's what I was expecting. Yeah, thanks, sister. Yeah, so a serpent. I mean, we, when's the last time, or if, if I say, biblically speaking, a serpent represents, or what comes to mind when I say serpent, where do your minds go? What chapter of the Bible? Yeah, Genesis 3. I say serpent, you think Genesis 3, the devil, sin introduced, deceiving Eve, you know, in the garden. And that's, that's what understandably uh, comes to mind for us. We go back there. So looking back at this famous account, Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent, not this account, but in Genesis 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So even the New Testament, when it looks back 
on Genesis 3 or the fall, it still refers to the devil as a serpent. The serpent is one of the more common names for him. Revelation 12. I think there's five or six times in Revelation when the devil is called a serpent. Here's just one example. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the world, thrown down to earth, his angels thrown down with him, an angel sees the dragon. Here's Revelation 20. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan bound him for a thousand years. And so uh, there's also in uh, Revelation 12 some other verses making this point that the devil is known as or called the ancient serpent. And so we can easily wonder why God would tell Moses to use this form that Satan took or use, use this, this image that's, that's so, sim, uh, so symbolizes the devil as this instrument of healing for the people, but it's actually that symbolism that we could be uncomfortable with that makes this such a fitting and beautiful picture of Christ. Because if the serpent became sin, or excuse me, if the serpent represents sin, and Christ became sin for us on the cross, then what better picture or type could there be of Christ being lifted up on the cross than a serpent? So Jesus established this typology between himself and the bronze serpent. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, John 3, 14 and 15. Now, if you, were to, if you were to take the serpent, if you had a pole and you put the serpent horizontally on the pole, uh, we don't know exactly, so I'm just telling you the two suspicions I have, then you could have a cross if the, if the serpent is horizontal on the pole. Or if you have the serpent then wrapped around the pole, then I'm not sure I'm going to say this, pronounce this correctly. What is that called? Who can tell me what that's called? That sign for medicine? And Cadeus? Okay, I had Aslepius. See, I didn't even want to try. But do you, know, do you guys know the image I'm talking about? You see a pole and the serpent wrapped around it, that sign, sign for healing. So that's the other thing. And maybe they, does anyone know if, with that symbol, is that where they drew it back, drew it from? Did they look back on this and create, it, and create it from that? And so that's the other thing. If the snake's wrapped around the pole, it forms this, the sign for healing. It would also be fitting imagery because Isaiah 53, 5 says that by Christ's stripes, we are healed. We understand healed uh, spiritually. So all of this can make the symbolism more troubling unless we see this association between Jesus and the serpent and Jesus becoming sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is classic double imputation that at that moment on the cross, when, when Jesus cried out that he was forsaken uh, from his father because he became, I, the way I would say it is like the sinfulest, the fullest person full of all sin of all redeemed humanity. In that moment, all of the sin of all redeemed humanity imputed to him, put to him as account as he hung on that cross he bore, I mean, all, each of us just bears, can, we, we bear enough sin that we warrant eternity in hell. And so it's like, just the sin of one person is so great. Just the sin that we have committed in the years of our lives is so great. And to think of the sin of all of redeemed humanity being put to Christ's account when he is on that cross and for him to, to bear all of it, you can wonder how one man could do that. You could say, how could, how could 
Jesus bear the sin of all redeemed humanity throughout all of history in that moment. And the only solution is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is an infinite being. And because he is an infinite being, he can contain this, this amount of sin. And he can even contain the, I don't want to say an infinite amount of wrath, but all of the wrath of God that was against all of redeemed humanity for the sins that we have committed. And so all of our sin being put to Christ's account. And so it wasn't, it, it literally was as though he bore that sin. He received it in himself. This is, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is not the only place making this point. Other places making this point. Wednesday night, Jake's been going through Isaiah 53. He pointed out the substitutionary atonement of Christ with him being in our place on that cross as though he is us. Isaiah 53.11, it says, he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, consider these verses looking, also looking backward on Christ's sacrifice. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9, 28, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So these all discuss Christ being our sin bearer. Romans 8, 3 says, God sent his son, this is interesting, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Now, what would have the likeness of sin more than a serpent? And so it's very fitting in a way that might be somewhat uncomfortable or awkward for us, that when Christ was on the cross, there really could be no better picture or type for him than a serpent because there is no better picture or type associated with sin than the serpent. Any thoughts or anything? Okay, so now we've dealt with serpent. Now let's deal with bronze. Go ahead and turn to Exodus verse 40, or chapter 40, just uh, a little to the left. <laughs> as much as the serpent is associated with sin, in your mind, I want you to associate bronze with judgment. As much as you associate serpent with sin, associate bronze with judgment. So my Saturday morning men's, or not men's any longer, my Saturday morning group, as we're going through uh, what the Bible's all about and looking at a different book of the Bible each week. This, this, we've recently looked at Leviticus and Numbers, and it had, uh, Numbers had a picture of the tabernacle. And one of the things I was kind of, we were looking at in this picture of the tabernacle is that the first thing when you walked into the tabernacle that you encountered was the bronze altar. It was right there. It was large. It was looming. I would say it was, it was ominous in a sense because there's these animals being burnt constantly on it. And that's the first thing that you reached when you, well, not when you went into the tabernacle because they, they, didn't, they couldn't go into the tabernacle itself unless they were, uh, I can't even say Levites, but unless they were descendants of Aaron, unless they were part of the Aaronic priesthood. But they, if they went in the courtyard, so once they walked into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing after the entrance, it's not the tabernacle itself, it is not the, the, um, it's not the bronze laver for washing, it is this bronze altar. It was the largest of the seven pieces of furniture in the, in the courtyard or in the tabernacle construct. It was situated prominently in the outer court. It's the most imposing object. Look at verse, I should have turned there myself. Turn to, X, if you're not there, Exodus 40. Look at verse 6. It says, You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting. It actually means before the entrance. 
And then let's, actually, let's start at verse 2. And notice the repetition of the word bronze. So starting at verse 2, you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. So all the elements of the tabernacle in different ways pointed toward the plan of salvation uh, that's available through Christ. All of the elements of the tabernacle in different ways pointed toward the, the plan of redemption or the way that Christ saved us. Each ritual taught the people the fundamental principles of salvation, and the bronze altar, where the priest would offer these animals, vividly illustrated substitutionary atonement. And according to Leviticus 6.13, it says, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So they'd always see the smoke going up, I think, as a constant reminder of the people's sin that had to be atoned for. The bronze altar was also called the altar of burnt offering for that reason because of the smoke. And so, which means, like the bronze serpent, it combined, the bronze altar combined the same things in a sense that the bronze serpent did. Bronze, sin, fire, and judgment. So, in the Israelites' mind, the main thing that they would have seen associated with bronze up to this point would have been the bronze altar where their sins were judged or where atonement was made for their sins. That would have been the strong association in their minds. But this isn't the only place to associate bronze and judgment. Take your minds back to God's pronouncement on the devil in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, Jesus shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. Uh, the word bruise, it's not the strongest. It sounds like you're, you know, kind of walking and bump your leg or something on a desk and get a bruise. But it'd be better to understand crush is what's in view there. And so it says that the seed of the woman that we know is looking forward to Christ is going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent is also going to crush the heel of this seed of the woman. And it would make sense of the serpent's head after, he, after the God tells him he's going to slither on his belly. That's the part or the, the heel is the part that would be in, in reach of the serpent after he's commanded to, um, you know, crawl on his belly like this. Now, if you have that in mind, turn to Revelation 1, this imagery of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. This is probably the most dramatic and wonderful description of the glorified Christ in all of the Bible. I don't think anything rivals it. The transfiguration doesn't, doesn't rival this, as wonderful as that account is. So Revelation 1, this dramatic vision of the glorified Christ. Look at verse 15. It says that Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, the same feet that are going to crush the head of the serpent, refined in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters. So it seems like Jesus has pretty clearly recovered from his wound, recovered from the, having his, his heel struck. And he here has these feet that are indestructible. They survive the furnace. They're going to crush Satan's head. And one commentator put it like this. He said, glowing hot bronze, are, glowing hot bronze feet are a clear reference to divine judgment. 
There's also many places when it talks about Christ's victory over his enemies that his, the enemies are made like a footstool to be beneath his feet. So you just have this association between, you know, um, the feet of Christ and judgment. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That verse is quoted. It's applied to Christ in multiple places in the Gospels, in Acts, and in Hebrews. And so it's Christ's feet of bronze that are going to rest on the neck of his enemies. And for the purpose of understanding the type, recognize that bronze is associated with judgment. Now, what about being lifted up? If you had never read Numbers 21, what is the most common way for Christ to refer to the cross? When he looks forward to the cross, what does he say is going to take place for him? He says what? I'm going to be lifted up unless I am lifted up. It's one of the most common ways to refer to the crucifixion. John 8, 28, when you have, so not just in John 3, when he compares himself with a bronze serpent, but elsewhere, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing in my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In John 12, 32 to 34, Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show, now you could, so here's the thing. When I'm talking about Christ being lifted up, and perhaps there's a duality to this, perhaps it also has in view Christ being exalted, right? Perhaps kind of in the language of Philippians 2 that he's brought low, you know, that last rung where he dies even death on a cross. It's just talking about Christ's humility as you just go down that ladder of, of, of suffering until he finally dies on a cross. But then he's going to be lifted up and exalted and every knee bows to him. And so you say, well, maybe that's what's in view here when we talk about being lifted up. But listen to this. Jesus says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So when Jesus talked about being lifted up, he wasn't talking about his exaltation. He he wasn't talking about when he's glorified and all the nations of the earth come to him. It says here that he was talking about how he was going to die. And so the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And they said, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So even the crowds understood that he was talking about, about his death. So let's connect the dots. Or if any questions first. Or maybe it's better if I connect the dots first to see if there's any questions. <laughs> okay, let me connect the dots and you tell me if there are any questions. So we've got the serpent representing sin. We've got bronze representing judgment. We've got the bronze serpent representing sin being lifted up and judged, there really could be no more fitting description of what occurred based, as Jesus said in John 3, when the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross. Sin was lifted up and, and judged for us. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse, referring to Jesus, who shall stand as a signal. So just think about this for a moment. Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day, the root of Jesse, referring to Jesus, will stand as a signal, or some translations say a banner, for the peoples of whom of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the bronze serpent, it stood as this signal, or it stood as this banner for the people to look up to it to be saved from physical death. And similarly, Christ stands as the signal or banner for people to look up to to be saved from eternal death. Okay, any questions before we move on? All right. How were the people saved in Numbers 21? 
Interestingly, they were saved, I would say, by grace through faith. They were saved by looking to the bronze serpent that had been lifted up for them, or you could even say lifted up for their sin, or have been lifted up because they sin. All these people have been bitten by the serpent of sin. They are infected. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just as those who were bitten by the serpents died, so too do the people, all of us, bitten by and infected by sin, or bitten by the serpent, you might say, of sin, end up dying ourselves. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And it was only those who recognized that they were bitten. Now, people today are a little confused about whether they're bitten by sin. Most people today, assuming they're not in Christ or assuming they're unbelievers, deny that they're bitten. They deny their sinfulness. They are convinced of their morality and righteousness. They are convinced of their goodness. The last thing they would think is that they are are sinners who deserve death and judgment. In Numbers 21, there was no question in people's mind. If they were bitten, they knew that they were bitten. Nobody was wondering about it. They were suffering, probably writhing around on the ground in agony. But it still took recognizing that they were bitten to look up to the bronze serpent to be saved. Now, similarly, it is only those people who recognize that they have been bitten by sin who would look up to Christ to be saved. That's, one of the, that's kind of the fundamental principle behind the way of the master evangelism that Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron are more, uh, most responsible for because they understood that people would not desire a savior until they knew they needed to be saved. They would not desire to be forgiven for sin until they knew they were sinners who needed to be. The person, you know, on the plane doesn't want the parachute until they know the plane's crashing. The people don't want the fire department until they know the the house is on fire. And that's kind of the, the same approach that the way the master takes. Well, similarly, it's only people that know that they've been bitten by sin that are going to look to the bronze serpent and want to be saved. Without that knowledge of their sickness, people are going to trust in their own righteousness, or they're going to trust that they're healthy, spiritually healthy. You might say trying to offer them the gospel would be like trying to offer an antidote to people who don't think that they're dying, or, or you know, life preservers to people who don't know that they're, they're drowning. They don't see a need for Christ. So to be delivered, the Israelites, here's what's interesting. Because of how, how sinful the Israelites had acted uh, in rebelling against God, criticizing the bread, calling it loathsome or worthless, and because they're under the Old Testament, what would you expect them to have to do? Something to atone for their sin. Because under the Old Covenant, people had to do something to try to atone for their sin. There was works or there was effort required in making amends for what they had done. Well, what's interesting is the bronze serpent is one instance when the people were clearly saved by grace through faith, apart from works or apart from offering anything that would have saved them. And so even, in, it's almost like the bronze serpent to me, I kind of look at it and it's like, it's a beautiful picture, or let me say it like this, the bronze serpent is a beautiful window into the new covenant under the old covenant. Or the bronze serpent is this beautiful picture of Christ in the midst of all of the Mosaic law and man's efforts at atoning. So even when you listen to this, you say, so was man saved under the old covenant through works? No, that, that's not it at all. People would offer these things, and what the Old Testament communicates or reveals 
is that despite man's greatest effort, no matter how hard man would work, no matter what he would do, he could never even provide for the forgiveness of one sin. Hebrews 10 says that all the blood of the bulls and goats that you could add up would never even remove one sin. It would simply cover or atone, those, atone for those sins. Atone means cover those sins until Christ could come. And like John the Baptist says, when he looks at Christ and says, behold, the Savior of the world who takes away sin, the sin would actually be able to be taken away. And so when people were performing all these works under the Old Testament, all it did was reveal that their works cannot do anything about their spiritual condition. They could not, they could not be saved through any amount of human effort. It, it was only through, through, by grace through faith. And so here with the bronze serpent, you see a wonderful picture of that where the people were able to be saved by grace through faith without having to perform any acts of service, without having to give any amount of money, without having to pray or fast for any hours. They just needed to look to this bronze serpent. And doing that, and doing that I would not say faith is a work. Uh, it is not a work, but it did take faith for them to look to the bronze serpent to be saved. I've wondered this. I don't think there's any indication in the text, so I don't want to go too far down this, down this trail. But were there people who didn't have faith? I mean, imagine when the word spread that there was, you know, the, kind of the joy in the camp. All these people are suffering excruciatingly, and the word spreads, and I would assume it spread very quickly, that there is a cure that is available for these people. So were there some who might have done what? Scoffed? You know, were there some who might have mocked and said, this sounds stupid to me? You're telling me all I need to do to be saved is just look up to this bronze serpent, and if I do that, then suddenly I will be healed? Were there some people that thought that that sounded too ridiculous or too foolish, and so they didn't believe it would work? It seemed too easy for them. There wasn't enough for them to do. Perhaps they just thought it was too illogical. Well, if that's true, then that furthers the gospel or furthers this type with the gospel because what do many people think about the gospel? Yeah, the exact same thing. They scoff, they mock. I can remember when I was dealing with some Catholic, well, let me back up. I remember when I heard the gospel for the first time, having been Catholic, I thought it sounded too easy. I said, you're telling me all I need to do to be saved is just, is, and I'd kind of say it condescendingly or mockingly, you're telling me, oh, all I need to do to be saved is just put my faith in Jesus and then I'm going to be saved, right? When I'd spent my life in a workspace religion convincing me that I would only be saved if I performed all of these sacraments and, and attained an amount of righteousness in my own heaven, effort that allowed me to go to heaven. And even then, I still thought I'd probably spend some amount of time in purgatory first. So it's a great picture of the gospel if these people did think that this was foolish, because many people today think that the gospel is foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it really, we, we get so used to it. We love Christ. We love the gospel. We love what he's done for us. We have embraced it. But for other people, they could say something like, how would a man hanging on a cross save him? How would some man suffering terribly like this be a way for me to go to heaven? It doesn't make any sense. This sounds completely absurd what you're saying to me, that if I just believe that, then suddenly I'm going to be good enough to go to heaven. And some people could have said, well, how am I supposed to just look at this snake on this pole, and then if I do that, then suddenly I'm going to be healed. 
So were there some Israelites who didn't look up? And if they didn't, then they would have perished with, you know, they would have perished with salvation or healing right at their fingertips like many people do perish today. Any thoughts or questions before we start talking about some application? Okay, Numbers 21. Go ahead and turn back there. Actually, sorry, go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 10.9. I'll show you an important verse there that, that uh, challenged me. Challenged me because I become frustrated. I complain. I become irritated, annoyed. I grumble. I murmur. I'm like Israel in the wilderness. So 1 Corinthians 10 is a pretty wonderful chapter. We looked at, we actually looked at an amount of 1 Corinthians 10 last week. It's a chapter that looks back on Israel's time in the wilderness. So the last two weeks we spent an amount of time at the first half of the chapter where it discussed the uh, rock being struck and also discussed the cloud the, uh, and the pillar of fire. But now I w- it kind of goes past that in the, cha- in the passage. Look at verse 9. Actually, look at verse 6. We'll start at verse 6 in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things, referring to the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament, took place as examples for us. So we're supposed to learn from what happened with Israel in the wilderness. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So it's just looking back on these different accounts with the, with the um, golden calf and, and then uh, probably their fornication with the uh, Midianites when the plague that Phineas stopped. I believe that's probably what's in view in talking about the immorality there. I, I might be wrong. But look at verse 9. This is the, this is the verse associated with the bronze serpent. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So it's kind of interesting to me. If you were in Exodus, you think they're just testing or trying God, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us they were actually testing or trying Christ himself, if your Bible says Christ. Mine has a footnote saying, that some manuscripts say the Lord, but in the ESV it's Christ. So they were testing God through their complaining and through their murmuring and through their frustration, which tells me I'm supposed to learn from this, and I test God. I, I believe I frustrate him by my, by, um, you know, the way I act at times. Now they look like they might have had a reason to, to be upset because of the detour that they had to take. But, and probably, you know, maybe eating the same food all the time. My understanding is the, actually in Psalms, the manna was called the food of angels. So it actually sounds like it was pretty good. They probably should not have been complaining about that. I don't think there's any excuse for that. But it was frustrating for them to have to walk around, eat eat them like this, take this detour. And so I guess one of the lessons or one of the things that's challenged me is in the same way when we experience frustrating situations, it doesn't seem to be an excuse for us to complain. When we experience frustrating situations, which all of us experience, it does not seem to be an excuse for us to complain. One of the things I was reflecting on, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, lists the fruit of the Spirit. Some of them, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. When I am complaining and grumbling about my circumstances or difficulties I'm experiencing, then I'm not producing the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, self-control, um, 
I should be controlling myself. I'm not being gentle. I'm not being peaceful. I'm not being patient. And, but when we suffer or when we go through difficult or frustrating things, when we have to walk all the way around Edom and extend our time in the wilderness, but we remain calm, then we're allowing the Holy Spirit to produce this fruit in our lives that uh, allows us to be more like Christ and handle things the way he would desire. Any, any thoughts or anything before we think of, look at, consider the next lesson? Yeah, nice and loudly. Try to talk over your shoulders so everyone can hear too, please, Jake. I did it. <laughs> um, and I think I don't criticize, I don't um, think of myself, my own complaints in the same way. You know, I think I'm very fair, fair minded. <laughs> like, you know, well, this is really different, you know, but it's not. It's, it's different. So, yeah, I just think it's a good reminder to be really careful about criticizing God for complaining in this moment. Yeah, and especially as parents, because our, our children look at our example. You know, and they and how uh, many times our kids go to bed, uh, and I don't know if they know this. Katie and I are tired, and we're having our evening conversation. That's when we have our alone time, and we have about an hour, maybe two, uh, to, kind of depending on when Katie wants to go to bed. I suppose after the kids go to bed, and we're sitting there, and she's exhausted, more exhausted than I am, I think most of the time, and talking and sharing some of our frustrations with our children about our children. And generally, we're actually even more frustrated because we feel like they are like us, or they're acting like us, or they got this from us, or they act this way because they learned that from us. Uh, very convicting to see your, your failure, your weaknesses or sin in your children. It, it's a very um, humbling thing to, it's very humbling as a parent to believe your children are acting a certain way because they got that from you because you weren't a better example in, in that respect. And so, you know, that's why uh, one of our frequent prayers is that our children would be better than us, that God would be gracious to us and not hold our children accountable for our weaknesses, that he'd be merciful in our lives and allow our children to be, to be better, um, grow up to be better adults than, than we are in different ways. So yeah, that's definitely, have you ever found yourself, um, you know, disciplining your children for yelling and screaming, but you're yelling and screaming at them while telling them not to yell and scream, you know, or you're criticizing your kids for complaining and then they, you know, point out when you were complaining. So yeah, very, very convicting. Any other thoughts before we consider the next lesson? Okay, Numbers 21, 6 and 8, it says, Fiery serpents, they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And then it says, Everyone who is bitten, when he sees the bronze serpent, he shall live. So Israel suffered very greatly in this uh, chapter. Many of the people died enduring these painful snake bites. And all of it could have been avoided. And to me, all of it was a consequence of their immature response to disappointment. All of the suffering that the Israelites experienced in this chapter could have been avoided if they would have simply responded better to the disappointment that they experienced. And so, so it's evident that all of this is God's discipline. They went through all of this because God was disciplining them. Consider the following verses. If you should, this is 1 Peter 3, 14 and 17. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What are, what are these verses basically doing? They're saying that we can suffer for one of two reasons. We can suffer for good, we're being persecuted for Christ, 
or we can suffer for our own sin or failures, in which case God is disciplining us. And Peter says one of these is good. It is good if you're suffering for Christ. It is bad if you're suffering because of your sin or because of something that you've, you've done wrong. And so when you suffer, or when we suffer, I think it's important, I think it's very unfortunate when we suffer for sin, but we think, and it's discipline, but we think it's a trial or we don't see our part in it. And it's equally, it's equally bad if we suffer, um, and it's not our fault, but we do think it's our fault. And I've seen both of those. I don't know if I, were, I told you guys one time, I don't know the woman, and I don't know if I ever heard from her again, but a woman experienced a miscarriage probably somewhat late, in the pregnancy, and she was very grieved by what had happened, and she reached out to me and sent me an email, and through the email, I could hear the pain that she was experiencing. Uh, Katie experienced, uh, has experienced three miscarriages. They have been early, not that they're ever easy, but they'd been early in her pregnancy, which was, um, you know, better than if it's further along, and so this woman, she's suffering greatly, and what made it worse was she thought it was her fault. She thought God was upset with her, she didn't, she didn't, doesn't seem like she had smoked or drank or done anything that would have contributed to a miscarriage. She thought, you know, basically the only reason God would take my child from me was if he's really upset with me. And I thought that it was so unfortunate that she would suffer and think that God was punishing her when I believed that he was not. That's just a trial. We just experience trials independent of anything that we have done. We have not introduced it into our lives. We have not caused it. And it's unfortunate when we experience a trial and think it's discipline, but it's equally unfortunate when we experience um, discipline when God is trying to teach us something and we think it's a trial. And so Israel, to their credit, there's not a whole lot to commend about Israel in this account. There's not a whole lot that I can look at them and say that they did well and we should, we should emulate their example here. But there is one good thing they did. They seem to learn from this. They seem to quickly humble themselves, cry out to God for deliverance. Um, they seem to have recognized the sinfulness of what they did. And that's one good thing we can learn from because I think it's very unfortunate if we are, if God is disciplining us because he wants us to learn something, but we're not learning that because we're not seeing our fault in it, and we have to kind of continue going through the same thing, which I believe has happened in my life before. And so whatever lessons God has for us, we really want to try to learn those as soon as possible so that God doesn't have to keep disciplining us, us for them. And so Israel here, they were not suffering a trial, like, here's, let me tell you, here's a trial Israel experienced. Going into the wilderness and not having food. They didn't do anything to cause that. It actually says, like you read two weeks ago, that they were where they were according to God's word. So God brought them to a place that didn't have food. God brought them to a place that didn't have water. They were experiencing the trial of not having food and water. God brought them to the border of the Red Sea. They did not do anything to cause this suffering. That's a trial. But when you get bitten by a bunch of serpents because you're complaining, then that's discipline and God is trying to, to teach you something. Hebrews says that God disciplines us so that he can produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives, so he can produce good in our lives as a result of it. And hopefully that's the case with, um, with the Israelites here. Any other thoughts or anything? Before we move on to the next lesson or application. Um, Patty, nice and loudly. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Yeah, very good. They responded quickly. That is, a, that is a good example, too, that hopefully we would respond quickly, uh, you know, when we sin or confronted to learn that, and that, that it would not be drawn out for some period of time. Like David, when Nathan confronts him, 
I guess my understanding, you know, had been months since his sins of adultery and murder. And uh, I mean, long enough that, that the child, you know, had, had grown in amount and before he lost it. And so he had hid his sin for some time, but then he did respond quickly and repent when Nathan confronted him. Other thoughts? Okay, the next application, not sure if we'll finish it this morning. But it seems to me that the Israelites were regularly complaining about the authority that God had given them. The Israelites are regularly complaining about the authority that God had put in their lives. And they were punished for that. God seemed to have been very upset with Israel complaining about the people that God put in charge of them. So if you look, turn to Exodus 16. There are a few examples. We'll try to walk through them. Not sure we'll finish this morning, but... Okay, look in Exodus 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by our pots of meat and ate our bread to the full and everything like that. But then when Moses responds, where is Moses' response? He said, and I don't see the verse, Moses said they were complaining against God. Can someone see verse 6? There is a verse where they said they were complaining against God. Or your grumbling is against. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. I didn't put the verse number. I, don't, I put my verses in my notes, and I didn't put the number. The end of verse 7? Okay, thank you. Okay, look at the end of verse 7, maybe the end of verse 12. Okay, very good. Look at the verse 7. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. And maybe he also says it in, in verse 12. But I just want you to notice there, and I noticed this a few times, and we'll look at the other examples next week, that the Israelites regularly thought they were complaining against Moses and Aaron, the individuals that God had put in authority over them. And Moses and Aaron, or God, made very clear that they were complaining against God because that was the authority that God had put in place. And to complain against that authority was to complain against, against God himself. And so this is, uh, you can look also, turn to Exodus 17. Just one chapter to the right. Verse 2. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. So they think they're quarreling with Moses. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So they probably thought, we're just upset with Moses and Aaron. We don't have a problem with God himself. Moses makes it clear, you are testing God and his patience. Turn to Numbers 14. This is the account with the spies. Numbers 14, verse 2, all the people of Israel, they grumbled, complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. You're kind of used to that. You read it so many times where they make it sound like Egypt was so much better. But then go down to verse 9. 
And Moses says, no, excuse me, not Moses. This must be Joshua and Caleb. Joshua or Joshua and Caleb said in verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. And so they saw through this that they were actually complaining against, against God himself. And so uh, we'll continue that next week. You can be thinking about it now and the association between the authority, people God's put in authority, and then complaining against them and complaining against God. Any thoughts before we close? All right, let me pray and then enjoy some fellowship before the worship service. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you that your son, he became sin for us, that he was lifted up and that he was judged on that cross. We thank you for this beautiful picture of him in Numbers 21 and that Jesus establishes that type for us. In John 3, we thank you that Jesus uh, was willing to bear our sin, all the sin that we have committed, currently commit, and will commit in the future, taking it upon himself and receiving the punishment that we deserve. What, what a really uh, unimaginable um, amount of suffering he must have endured for that, those hours there, Lord. As an infinite being, he could endure an infinite amount of wrath and on our behalf, Lord. Help us to see the types of Christ that you've uh, contained so we can grow in our affection for him. Uh, be with us now as we go into the worship service, and I pray we, we would just be able to please you through our time together this morning, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.